Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Fintech at IU podcast, the podcast tailored for college students talking about demystifying financial technology. So today we are here with Michelle Tran, who is the current head of enterprise sales and strategic partnerships at Vestwell. She's also the board member of Take the Lead Woman and the founder of NYC Fintech Woman, which is one of the biggest events for women in fintech in New York City. So Michelle, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited for today's conversation. So, Michelle Tran, uh, I a couple different things. One, um, I lead enterprise sales and our channel partnerships team for Vestwell. Vestwell is a digital retirement platform. We partner with um, a number of folks in the financial institution space, like the Morgan Stanleys, the JP Morgans, to help them offer retirement solutions to their small business clients. Um, so that's my focus today. My background is everything financial services, everything fintech from years at BlackRock um, globally, San Francisco, Hong Kong, New York, to um, going to the opposite end and working for a pre-seed startup um, huh. called Harness Well. So I've done a, a couple of different things in different spectrums. But for me, you know, absolutely love fintech. Um, it really is democratizing and bringing access across many different um, industries or channels of, of financial technology, financial services. Um, I love it so much, and I really love empowering women that I started NYC FinTech Women a couple of years ago. And we are a 12,000 plus member organization based primarily in New York, but we're also we're everywhere now, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco. Mm. Um, we just had an event in London. Um, and really what our mission is to empower, connect and promote women in fintech. Um, you know, you know, you need a network in order to progress, in order to close the deals. And that's what we're providing there out in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and then in addition to that, um, you know, starting a new initiative called Tiger Collective, which is really focused on focused on um, Asian women, female founders. So really amplifying stories of Asian female founders. So excited to chat a little bit more about that, too. Yeah, it's something that we I think that we've struggled with a little bit the, at the micro level too within our student organization here is that it seems to me that that women might not have an interest in financial services because I think personally that um, women are are told that they sh don't belong in in financial services and they don't belong in technology and I. I want to break that paradigm down uh, as someone who leads a, a sizable student organization on, on campus. Um, we're probably right in line with the industry. We have 22% women, um, which there's 24% in, in high finance um, in, in industry. So um, what are some of your thoughts on um, the things that women are told um, growing up and, and how can we break down some of those barriers at the micro level and the macro level? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good um, focus and, and question. I think one of the, the main things, right, like as you think about finance is understanding what does finance mean? There are so many different ranges of roles and functions of finance, inclusive of fintech. Um, and I think as folks who are, you know, kind of, let's say college or even earlier, don't really have a sense or don't have exposure to what finance could be. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes typically thought, oh, you just have to be an investment banker or you just have to be a quant. And that is completely untrue, right? There's so many different roles and so many different ways to get into finance. I think the other piece, too, is really encouraging girls from a very early age um, in that STEM background, really focused on how do you how do you embed them and ensure that you're building up those math skills, get them into the sciences, really encouraging from the get go. There's a there's a lot of um, focus on when girls turn 12 or 13, their um, confidence in themselves really starts tanking. And this all kind of coincides with, you know, middle school and puberty and, and all those, you know, wonderful things about growing up. But for girls, especially, you know, are we going to kind of get the messaging that, hey, you know, maybe this path isn't for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just need to get, we need to eradicate that, right? Like you need to continue through this. And there's, the great thing now is that there's just so many different programs and focuses on making sure that STEM continues consistently throughout someone's education. Yeah, I, I think that in, in, imposter syndrome is, is a huge thing. I, I feel that too. It's um, it's something that um, kind of deters people from being in industry, but it's something you really have to push past. And I'm wondering, have you ever felt that in your, in your career? And what was that like, whether it's an internal feeling or an external feel, a feeling of people making you feel that you're not wanted or you're not enough? Yeah, I, I think there's always imposter syndrome, right? And 
uh, you know, I, at, at no point do I think it actually goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we're always going for like bigger jobs or we're always going into toe dipping into like industries that we don't know, like, do I know enough to be here? And, you know, the, there's the saying about, you know, women will typically apply for a job if they say that they can do the majority or hundred percent of the functions that are listed mm-hmm. or have a hundred percent of the skills that are listed. Whereas men typically say, you know, I, I got 30% of that. I'm just going to go for it anyways. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to work past that because then you go in, if, if you know, a female then applies for something and they don't know everything there, that, then the, that insecurity with imposter syndrome starts um, seeping in. So why do you so, think that is? Is that, is that just a cultural thing between men and women or what is that exactly? I think it's, it's, it's a risk thing, It's a risk, right? Okay. Like, am I taking the risk? Um, of not really knowing what I'm doing? Am I taking the risk of um, setting the wrong expectations? Um, and women just tend to be risk adverse, a little bit more risk adverse, not mm-hmm. everybody, but just generally a little bit more risk adverse. And I think that risk is something that shouldn't correlate with gender. It's something that should correlate with age. Age is what what really matters in risk. If you're a college student, you should be traveling the world and, and seeing new things and broadening your horizons. I've pushed this on our members a lot. Just go in and see see parts of the world. Go do something that scares you every day. You know, I always hold that the opposite way. I, I thought that you should take risk later on in life because when people talk about risk, especially from what I've seen in college, it's more about the startup space or creating your own startup, mm-hmm. right? So people are saying, oh yeah, like there's so many people online that were gurus that I remember when I was when I was running this agency a couple years ago and they were all saying, hey, you know, you should, you should take risk now because you're in high school, you're in college. You don't have the responsibilities or obligations that you are going to have in the future. But the way I see it after going through that whole process, I think that when you're in high school and college, there's a trade-off because you have no experience. You have, you've never worked for anyone in high school and college. And how are you going to, how are you going to find someone to work with when no one's hiring someone in high school? Barely anyone is going to give someone real, real and fundamental and technical work while in college. So I think that when people talk about risk, I think it's so much better to take that in your 20s, in, in your 30s. And so many people of the so many people that we've talked to in fintech, they started their startups after working for 10, 15 years in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, because that way the risk is more calculated. And I think that's the biggest, most important thing. Yeah, I think the average, um, the startup founder tends to be like the the 30 to 40 year mm-hmm. old. I, we, I just interviewed... Um, Lindsay Liu yesterday, mm-hmm. um, I have a podcast called Her Name Is, focused on Asian Americans, and she's a CEO and founder of Super. So Super is um, a property management technology. And she's like, look, I wouldn't know, and she she was previously at Fortune 100s, driving digital product, managing director, kind of built her experience. And she's like, I'm really glad, one, um, I'm doing this now, because I built up my credibility, I built up my knowledge, I know how to, to run a business. Um, and so I felt more comfortable taking this risk after learning that. Mm-hmm. So, and look, there's two sides of that coin, right? Like I spent my formative years at BlackRock. So that was an amazing way to spend my 20s, early 30s, all because I built such an amazing network of folks that I call on to this day, mm-hmm. right? Everyone that you meet will go somewhere and do something amazing. And I call on them all the time and they're friends. Um, Versus like, I have some other friends too, who went the startup route early on and are very successful as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's really um, kind of where do you feel that comfort level and going in, you know, how does your also like, what are your, what are you biased to get, um, you know, towards? Yeah. I don't think it should be all about comfort though. I think that you should strive to put yourself in uncomfortable, uncomfortable situations in life. Um, and that's with everything, whether starting a company we always think of the perfect time to do something, but I don't think that really exists. There's no perfect yeah. time. There's no perfect time. And it's it's taking calculator or thoughtful risk, right? Like, are you ready just to jump into anything? Have you thought it through? Be very intentional with mm-hmm. that risk-taking action. You know, going from a BlackRock to a pre-seed firm is not an easy transition. Uh, there, no. I mean, there was, yeah, <laughs> there was one company in between that like helped with that transition, but it really still, yeah. like I didn't have a full marketing team. I didn't have my analysts. I didn't have like mm-hmm. the whole infrastructure. I really had to start everything from ground up. So yeah. like that's a risky venture, especially as it's pre-seed and you know the stats of you know, successful startups. So it's, it's and, definitely, but the way I thought about it from a risk standpoint was, um, look, I want to, I want to get, I want to roll up the sleeves. I want a ch- I want to be in that driver's seat. 
and that's the way I can do it. Yeah. So, and Michelle, I know you mentioned earlier that you are you are building this this new venture that is specifically tailored towards Asian American women. You said that wanna that wanna create startups in the fintech space. So, I had this one question because I remember when I ran my podcast back in high school. There was the there. I remember I interviewed a couple of girls that were in my classes, and it was it was a it was a it was a podcast that was specifically tailored towards creating your own agency, right? And I asked them how come they don't. They don't try to start something like this. How come they don't try to get into the online business realm? And they said it wasn't only because they thought they were limited because they were they were Asian American. They also said it was be, they thought it, it was because they were a woman as well. So it was those two factors. And I interviewed numerous other people beyond that, and they continued to say the same thing. So I was wondering if you think that there there's this this connotation, this belief that that women, especially Asian American women, think that those are two limiting factors when starting their own agency or starting their own VC venture? Yeah, I mean, it's two limiting factors across the board, yeah. whether you're starting something, whether, whether you're trying to go up in the ranks, um, and in all industries too, right? Not just fintech, not just, you know, there, it happens in law, it happens across the board. It's what we call the double-paned bamboo ceiling. Mm. So, as you know, you know, there's a glass ceiling for women that you, you try to break, um, Asian women, it's much harder. Um, and, and then you can say, you know, that, and, and in general for Asian Americans, there's a, just a general bamboo ceiling. Um, there's, you know, not discrimination, but just stereotypes and beliefs of, you know, mm -hmm. how do Asians, you know, Asians are great workers, right? Like there are 20, 30% of many industries are made up of, um, those who identify as Asian, but you think, you look at executives and you look at management, it's only single digits. You got five or 7%. Asset management, seven percent, um, are in those leadership roles. Yeah. So it's there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Couple that with you know kind of everything that happened during COVID. Yeah. Um, that there just needs to be a lot more focus. There's a really great um, Dave Liu who is um, founder of Hyphen Capital. He does a lot of focus on um, uh, on Asian founders and helping them get past. Um, you know, there's Asian Hustle Network. There's Gold House that launched. So there's a lot more focus now on the Asian community and you're starting to see that also in media, right? Like you see movies now. And and one with. thing that one thing that I believe and we're going to open a, a little bit of a can of worms with this, but I think that a lot of initiatives that try to support women are purely performative. Um, we've seen this um, in with organizations like like Bud Light to bring up a recent example where um, that was a, a very performative thing that was done um, on both ends of it, of the spectrum to um, make that organization seem like it was much more uh, forward thinking than it really was. And when that comes out, and I think it's starting to come out more, um, I, I just hope that we can see more responsibility in organizations um, where we're holding people to high standards and they actually have to care about these issues instead of pretend to care about them and seek understanding outside of just business. We can understand what fintech is. We can understand how BSA AML works all day. We can understand how the Dodd-Frank Act and uh, the Durban <laughs> Amendment created yeah. banking as a service. But you have to fundamentally understand people. People are at the center of business. And I, I wish that firms would stop being so performative with with initiatives with people. Yep. And it's, it's look, you saw a couple years ago where it was like DEI everything. Everything, everyone was hiring ahead of diversity Everyone was hiring, you know, DI focus, and now it's really taken a backseat. Mm -hmm. Where there's a recent article in the New York Times talking about um, kind of like where where are these heads of DEI now? Are they, what are they actually, you know, are they are we still hiring them? Mm -hmm. are, are they doing it because it's hard? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. hard for people to change because then they go back to say, hey, I'm just going to go back to my old network. I'm just going to do what I do. Let's look at the numbers, and for them to actually make that inherent change to yeah. really be intentional about it, it's a really hard thing to do. <sighs> So I want to talk a little bit about Investwell specifically. Um, what is what is kind of your day to day there, and um, what what are some of the the key challenges that you face uh, in your in your role, um, and how might that apply to to fintech as a whole? Yeah. Uh, so Investwell, yeah. So we're a Series C um, fintech. We focus on um, bringing workplace savings technology to financial institutions. So we help support, you know, kind of banks, advisors, sell 401ks, um, or offer 401ks in a white label capacity or even investable capacity out to small businesses. And we also, on the flip side, power a lot of the state programs. So states right now are 
um, mandating that, you, you know, small businesses have retirement. So, mm-hmm. you know, mom and pop diner down the street um, will need to offer reti- some type of retirement option. Mm-hmm. And if they don't want to start a 401k, they can go to the state program. So we mm-hmm. run a, about 80% of those. Um, it's a really interesting place to be because it's working within an industry that is pretty archaic when it comes to technology yeah. and built on archaic technology and also a lot of regulation. So it's very complex and bringing um, uh, a lot of scalability and efficiency and a, and a new type of tech platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really interesting. My day-to-day right now is, you know, I spend a lot of time, um, you know, talking to clients, getting clients, you know, understanding what Vessel is, working through our value proposition. Um, my focus right now is understanding how does Vestwell go beyond what we've been doing? How do we grow more exponentially? Mm-hmm. Are there other partners out there, other types of partners that we should be working with, right? We focus a lot on um, advisors. We focus a lot on other types of companies. Should we be in the banking as a service? Should we be partnering with them? Should we be partnering with um, InsureTech? Like what, mm-hmm. what, what are we not doing currently? And that's a really fun problem to solve because there's so much white space out there to yeah. say, hey, you know, we could be, we, there's so much stuff that we could be doing and it's just really just prioritizing and focusing. So I spend a lot of my time right now doing that research, talking to companies, figuring that out, um, and then helping folks internally really understand what's, what, how are we going to get there? I, I think of this, um, I'm starting to fully understand the complexity of retirement savings and, and, and things like that, because you might not, you might not think of it that way because I, I sign up, I, I get an employment offer at a firm. Um, they they give me a benefits package. It's in my contract, and I don't really think much of it. I contribute some amount, and then my employer might, may or may not match some of that. Um, but I, I recently took a 300 level tax class, and we dive. We did a pretty deep dive into RSUs and um, 401ks, and how complex some of the tax structures of that and the tax implications of that can be for both the firm and for um, the the consumer or the, the employee. So I, I'd like to think that this is a lot more of a complex um, industry with a lot of moving parts and not just a tax, but also regulation, especially with financial institutions. And it, it's very, very complex. And that's why a lot of our core is working through financial institutions and financial advisors mm-hmm. because they're the ones who can really help these small businesses navigate a lot of those questions, help them understand the benefits. Um, regulation in the past, um, we've we've had a lot of regulation tailwind. So Secure Act 2.0 passed last December that created a lot of benefits for small businesses. So if you're a small business, you get three years of tax credits um, if you start a 401k. States are requiring, um, you know, California, if you're a business with under five or more, if you have a business with five or more employees, you have to offer a retirement option or or you'll be fined by the state. Wow. So what does that drive? That's a lot of opportunity in the state of California. Yeah. Yeah, New York, New Jersey, they're all going down that road. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of states now are saying, look, we're we're looking out for our citizens. Mm -hmm. We think they should be, they should have retirement savings. And they should. They 100%. We undersave. Um, and underinvest, um, especially as you go dig down into like minorities, mm-hmm. right? They're not typically, you know, in general, uh, minorities tend to save less. And so how do you create these mechanisms to get people to save more? And that's an education thing, too. I don't think people are well enough educated about about finance. Um, we still have people. Um, I've, I've talked to a few of my friends that that still get zero percent uh, on their checking and savings accounts when you can get five percent yield out there. Uh, this is something I bring up to them all the time. I, I cringe a little bit inside at how um, little knowledge that some people have about retirement and how uh, Roth IRA works. Roth IRA is a very powerful tool to build wealth. Yeah, I think that yeah. people just I, – I think there's just when, – when they're young, especially in college or in their early 20s, they just don't care that much. They no. they be as, they see at the Roth IRA, mm-hmm. the benefits of that, that, that comes when you're 65 comes 40 years later. So they don't really think about the future. And I think that's yeah. that's a huge connotation with just every generation in general. Mm-hmm. I, Michelle, you probably see this as well. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, I guess, in general, when you're young, you think that you just got to live your life. You just got to you just you don't care about things like that because that's in the future. You have to live in the moment. You have to live in the present. And I think that's where that whole saying comes from. Yeah. And it's, it's all about compounding, right? I mean, you, you guys know that. Mm-hmm. Like you put in your Roth IRA now, yes, in like, you know, 
40 years, you won't see it now. You can't enjoy it now, but you're really going to enjoy it later. Um, and that goes for everything. And that, that goes back to the education, right? Getting people to care about it Mm -hmm. is part of that education piece. So a large part of what you do then is education fundamentally, because a lot of people might not know, might not even know that you can get a 401k. If you're working at a company that's, that's seed stage, that has very few, few employees, then you might not even be offered this. And if it's your, your first organization that you've worked for, your second one maybe, you've only worked for startups, you might not even know that there is a possibility that you get retirement benefits. Yeah. And I think the, <clears throat> the biggest education we do is for small businesses because they don't, they don't know that they get tax credits. It's essentially free mm-hmm. for three years for them. Right. So they're not paying, they're getting tax credits for them. And you think about retention. If you want to really keep great employees, you're going to have to offer them additional benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes beyond just like 401k. So we also are from a workplace standpoint, we're launching, you know, student loan repayment, we're launching emergency savings, we're launching, we have 529, we have ABLE, but it's all about these workplace savings mechanisms because that's all that, that pre-tax, right? And how are mm-hmm. you going to get the thing for your buck? Um, so there's a ton of education out there to get people to say, hey, why do I need to do this? What's mm-hmm. the value? So how do we make people care? We incentivize. So we incentivize, I think it's the best way to get people to care, right? Mm-hmm. You got to make it real for them. Um, hey, you put in a dollar, I'll give you $2. Mm-hmm. Or what's that incentive for you, right? And so that's where all that matching comes in. I work for a company and they're going to give me a 4% match. That's free money at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, how do you like, how do you think about that? It's free money. Um, that's, I think that's the, the, the one way we're going to be able to get people to care. I think the, this harkens back to the first episode we ever did, actually. It was with a professor in Indiana who teaches entrepreneurship and venture capital, um, started multiple companies, and is now working to democratize venture capital. And the, t- the title of the episode was Cultivation versus Consumption. And we've moved to such a consumption economy. And he argued that we should be cultivating more and planting seeds that will that will sprout in 10, 15, 20 years from now and actually start delaying gratification more. And it's difficult as someone who is in Generation Z that um, we're, we're told to consume all the time. And uh, walking back my previous statement about traveling the world a little bit, maybe we should be cultivating more. Do people really have that option to cultivate now, though? Because even when you see these inflation rates, there's so many more people living paycheck to paycheck. They don't really have that option because they have to buy the necessities to, to see another day. Yeah, it's a catch-22. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's two two coins, right? Like, it's it's can you and then will you, mm-hmm. right? Like, like there's a, that need for, like, instant gratification for everything now. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just on your phone so I can get something as information right now, right then. There should be no delay. Mm-hmm. And that just applies to to everything. Um, and it's, it's, people don't have the patience Mm -hmm. anymore for that, to see that investment go through and plant those seeds. But it's so important on that cultivation piece. Is this the biggest headwind you've seen in in what you're trying to accomplish with Vestwell? Um, I don't know if it's the biggest headwind. Um, you know, it's definitely a headwind in any business, right? As you think about, um, you know, how do I continue to build? We work with some of the, the biggest, entities out there, right? Like again, the JP Morgan's and Morgan Stanley's, um, and they're all seeing the benefit of it on a long-term basis. So it's really building out the business case and in, in wealth management and retirement, it's always about how do you grow your assets, right? How Mm -hmm. do you continue to build? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of them see that it's just making sure then, um, they're passing through that value proposition to that small Mm -hmm. businesses through their advisors. So what tends to be the biggest sticking point when you're going to an organization and saying this could really benefit you? Uh, what what are some some of the key things that you get pushback on? Um, I think the some of the key things are like we're not the only ones in the space. Yeah. Um, and so making sure that they understand, you know, what is our value proposition? How our technology is superior? Um, how's our service superior? Um, so they understand that. I think too. So I I work a lot in the enterprise space. Mm-hmm. So enterprise, you know, meaning these big organizations. And so a lot of that challenge is actually working through the organization and getting them to move forward mm-hmm. on budgets and resources and people. Um, enterprise is a marathon. Mm-hmm. It is not a sprint. It is not you know signing new deals every other day. It can take year. It can take months. It can take years. Um, and you have to have a decent amount of stamina to do it. I'd like to think a little bit that um, 
you're you're Series C right now, and um, when was when was that last uh, round of funding completed? Twenty 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 one. Fall of twenty twenty one. So that that was a rather easy round to to raise, considering how much liquidity was in the system. And now we're seeing more headwinds in the economy as well. Uh, rates are are through the roof this morning. Um, just absolutely ridiculous ten year ten year yields. Um, do you see more headwinds in, in terms of of raising additional funding if that's necessary? Um, I think there's. I mean, I think there's general market headwinds for everybody. Um, you know, as I talked to a lot of like founders through NYC FinTech Women and, and others, I don't think everyone's having like the easiest time mm-hmm. raising money across the board. But I, I think investors really see the value in Vestwell and what we bring to the market because we are unique in a sense of um, our position with technology um, in the retirement space, you know, our other um, our other friends in the in the more digital fintech space are more focused on, you know, going direct versus, you know, we're full intermediary, we're primarily intermediary. Um, and then our, some of our largest kind of institutional or more um, incumbents, you know, kind of our, our older technology. So I think there's a, a special niche that we fit. Um, so we'll see. Look, the, I, we think the market continues to change over mm-hmm. time. I think it's a, it's it's harder now, of course, for every single firm to raise versus 2021. Don't don't consumers save more in recessions though, or how does that dynamic tend to work? We're, we could be heading into a recession, so doesn't. Doesn't that do a net positive on your business if if people are saving more potentially? I think I've been hearing that we're heading into a recession for the past I don't know five or six years. <laughs> so until we head into that recession, I'm just not going to believe anybody. Um, but um, we actually have seen savings across like our participants stay the same or increase a little bit. There has been a little bit. Uh, there was like a, a slight dip when people were taking out more loans or taking out money for or um, taking out uh, money for hardship reasons across you know the past year or so. But all in all, it's really stayed consistent in terms of savings. I wouldn't say it's it's saved. People have been investing more in their retirement, mm-hmm. um, but it's just more, been more consistent. Is there is there a plan for for Vestwell to to horizontalize in a while and and move into some other offerings for for your uh, enterprise clients as well? Well, yeah. So you can really think of Vestwell. Um, you know, we talk a lot about four hundred and one k. We talk about a lot about retirement, but really at the the heart of it is Vestwell is um, you can think of Vestwell as the engine that really powers workplace savings. And so what does that mean, right? So it's an engine that says, hey what type of savings do you want to do directly from your, your employer, right? And I'm Michelle Tran, I have a couple of kids, should I actually point it towards a 529? Mm-hmm. Is that the right path? Should I think about um, emergency savings? Um, are there other vehicles I should be thinking about? And so really our focus is being that engine underneath for the workplace savings. A lot of the bulk of it right now is within retirement, but we're continuing to think about how do we help facilitate that m- movement? Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick five-minute break here. Yeah, so Michelle, I saw that you were on the on the billboard for NYC FinTech Woman. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, uh, we did an event for International Women's Day with NASDAQ in 2021. Uh, 2021. And um, as a thank you to their speakers, they threw our faces up on um, the billboard of NASDAQ, which is really cool. Um, that was the third time I've been on the billboard of NASDAQ, though. So the first time we did a bell ringing with Empire Startups, and that was really like <laughs> standing there and seeing our faces up mm-hmm. on the screen is like, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they actually had us open the bell. NYC FinTech women opened the bell virtually in um, 2021. Um, now I wasn't there in person. Unfortunately, I was in California, hmm. but it was really cool because we counted down and you saw all of our faces go up in a video <laughs> on the board. Um, and so the one that you see on my LinkedIn is the third time that was for as the thank you for International Women's Day. Um, but yeah, it's been, it was a lot of fun. It's always fun. I have I haven't actually um, I've only seen myself in person on the billboard once, but I'd love, to, I'd love to see it again. That's like the American dream, isn't it? Just seeing yourself in uh, one of the biggest or busiest places in New York City. 
That's a yeah. great LinkedIn post. Yeah. Just you next like, to the billboard of yourself. I know, right? You just, I'm uh, happy to announce. <laughs> the, the, the typical LinkedIn, LinkedIn stuff. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but that's got to be like the American dream. And, and yeah. do you ever look back and see you know, where, where you were 10, 15 years ago and now look at yourself and, and say, um, wow, what, what happened? <laughs> All the time. Uh, not only 10, 15 years ago, like I, like I'm a, I'm a first gen, um, first gen out of my family my my parents are immigrants. They, mm-hmm. you know, my grandparents mm-hmm. immigrated from China to Vietnam and then Vietnam to the U S mm-hmm. and for me, one, they, they sacrificed so much for me to be here. And just looking back at that to say, you know, it makes my parents really proud. It makes me really proud to say, you know, you guys helped me get to this point where like now I'm, my face is on the NASDAQ billboard and we're hosting events at the New York stock exchange and doing all this stuff. And it's a really cool story, but yes, I, I do that often. Also look back to say, Oh my gosh, three years ago I was in New York and now I'm in California. How did that happen? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of freezing up a little bit because I relate to that um, a lot. Both my parents are, are immigrants from, from Turkey. And um, we, we, we struggled a lot during 2008. And um, I hope that, that one day uh, I can, I can have that kind of or that level of success because I I want to I want to show my parents that um, all the effort they put in to to get me to this place is was not in vain. Um, I think about them every day and and how I can how I can make them happy um, and how I can not be a failure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, th- I think I, I just I just have to guess that they're very proud right now. I, but I think like what you're doing with the podcast too is part of that, right? Like getting out these stories, getting out mm-hmm. this information. A lot of that is how are you helping others? Mm-hmm. Um, and that at the end of the day is like when we think about the sacrifices our, our parents made for us, is like we have a certain responsibility to help others as well. Um, and, you know, I won't have the same type of yeah. boat crossing that my parents had or that risk, but mm-hmm. there's what can I do to, to really help others kind of take an additional step? That's what that's what Eric and I keep in keep in mind every day. Um, the the third meeting that we had with our group of 106 members within two months, actually absolutely phenomenal. I can't believe we've gotten to this spot already. We talked about some some advanced recruiting techniques for internships because there's people going around and telling freshmen particularly that there's no way in hell you're going to get an internship. Um, there, it's impossible. And we at our club meeting yesterday, someone said that they were laughed at by someone from, from a certain bank um, because they were – he was being – uh, pretty demeaning and saying, "Oh, you're so ambitious in a in a facetious way," um, and there's people going around and, and telling people that they they can't really do this kind of stuff, and and we want to be that voice for them and, and show them that there is a way, um, even when there are headwinds and telling you that that you can't do things. Yep, and there's and there's so many different types, right? Like that again, going back to like the exposure, mm-hmm. what is available, um, and it's not just you know mm-hmm. there's only it's not the fact that you only should intern at like four big banks or the you know major accounting firms. Like, there's a lot of different opportunities mm-hmm. out there. Um, and as you're talking about freshmen, I'm just going to say my cousin Andrew Borchigan, who at IU, I'm going to call him out here. Name drop. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Andrew. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. You you two live in the same dorm too. That's what I've heard. Yeah, that's. I've never met him though, so no, no I have no idea. I'll definitely reach out to him after this though. That's funny. Sure, yeah. he's gonna send me a scathing text after this. <laughs> that's hilarious. Was he gonna be the next guest speaker? I don't know. We, we should have done that. You should call him up right now. Say, yo, what's up? <laughs> Come join. Oh, that's funny. As someone you've led, you've led organizations for some time now. How how do you empower people? Because that that's something I struggle with. I see there's people that just get it in an organization, right? There's people who who participate frequently, but then there's people who might not feel as comfortable standing up and saying what they truly feel, which is which is kind of a paradox because their opinion is just as valuable as the people who speak up all the time. How can how can we as as leaders? Um, even at a university, encourage people to to speak up and empower them to 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 say what they truly feel. I think it's, it's one is recognizing um, what's the best way for them to do that, 
right? And giving them space, right? Where I think, you know, probably three of us are cut from the same cloth. We're like, hey, we'll raise our hand and we'll speak and we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. And there's other people who are just not comfortable. So what's another way for them to, to share their voice? Is it through writing or is it through a, a different platform? Um, one of the things that we used to do through NYC FinTech Women, we still do, mm-hmm. um, is that for all of our events, so we would have happy hours every networking events every month, we would say, you need to go out there and meet five people. And we would put the onus on us saying, you have to go meet them. Go ahead, blame Michelle Tran. Because it's hard for people to take that step, right? To say, yeah. hey, I don't know you. Tell me more about you. Because you're trying to build these authentic relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's easier when you're able to, someone can intentionally give you the permission to do that. Um, so that's one way. That, that harkens back. It's one of my, one of my favorite lines of all time. It's, it's from the big short and it, it's the fact that just to paraphrase that, that business kills the part of you that is essential and that's your human side. Um, and the part that of us that yearns for social connection. And I've, I've noticed that and I understand it more than now that I've lived it. Um, people, people talk about, oh, value creation and all these, these buzzwords in corporate, but we forget that it fundamentally is about people. You know, I would say that I think this take is very universal, but what I've seen, especially from people that I've had as, as bosses in the past, I would say, especially with you, James, right now, I think that the effort that people at the top reciprocate or just, I guess, put towards you especially to the people they oversee, mm-hmm. the effort they put in where, you know, I, I know me and James, when we're doing this podcast thing, like I, I literally have you pinned because of the number of messages we, we send each other every single day, yeah. just mapping out what we're going to do with this podcast. Exactly. What, what's going on? If there's a problem, you know, I'm James always responds in, in one to two minutes. And I think that that effort that is shown by a leader, it's something that you as someone he oversees or he or she oversees wants to reciprocate and because because if they're showing that amount of effort and and you're not reciprocating that i I think that i personally feel very bad i think a lot of people feel the same way and i think that effort does not go unnoticed yeah 100 percent. it's you know it's it's i always tell people like oh i want to speak to this person i want to reach out i'm like great you can you can ask but also always have an offer Right. That reciprocal mm-hmm. relationship is so important. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, it is about building relationships, regardless of like what the intent of that relationship is. And there may be no intent or mm-hmm. you're trying to get a deal done or you're trying to, you know, kind of, you know, get a referral for a job. But in the, the day, we're all people and we all want to be valued and we all want to to meet authentic people as well. It, it's hard to be valued nowadays, though, especially people looking for internships. And I've, I've lived this, um, applying, yeah. applying to 100 jobs. There's, there's people that have tried this and applied with, with dummy resumes um, with amazing qualifications, and they're still only getting about a 10% interview rate. Um, the human mind was not made to handle that much rejection. Um, re- being rejected 90 times and only being accepted 10, um, and out of those 10 being accepted for only maybe one of them. Um, how, how can people combat rejection? I think people fear rejection a lot uh, because we're getting rejected a lot more because of the internet. Yeah, but isn't that just life? Because no matter how good of an applicant you are, no matter how good your resume is, you're not going to get into every single thing you apply to. No, but I'm just saying without the internet, there there yeah. used to be a, a time, I, I lived a little bit of it, where you would mm-hmm. walk into a restaurant or, or some institution and just hand them your resume. Um, that, that's not really a thing anymore because now the markets are for jobs are a lot more competitive. It's all about Uh, differentiating yourself, finding your unique factor. Yeah. So you have to do a lot more work now. It's not just showing up somewhere, uh, and, and handing them your resume and you'll get an instant look. But doesn't that make you better? It does make you better. That's, that's the other argument. Because you have a thicker skin because of how much you've been rejected. Yeah. Like there was this guy in one of my classes, he came in and guest spoke. He was talking about how as, a, as an incoming senior, he's a junior like you are right now, and he applied to 400 internships, and he got rejected from 395 of them, and he landed five interviews, one of which he landed. So he said that just that whole process in general, he's been going through it year after year. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time he's actually landed an internship. Wow. So I would say that whole process, it's all about the character building. I think you come out better on the other side. Everything happens for a reason. That's true. I think that that also speaks to how important building your network is. And it's never too early to begin building your network. And it's a muscle that you need to practice constantly and doing mm-hmm. it in an authentic way. Um, to the point of like, hey, internet has caused 
just so much more opportunity, but also so much more kind of challenges. It's, mm-hmm. It is true. Like resumes go through a filter, right? Yeah. If they don't, if it doesn't say the right words, you're not even going to get to anyone's eyes. Yeah. Regardless of like how amazing you are, if you just don't have the right words on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, someone told me, I was like fixing my resume a couple of years ago. And they're like, just throw all these words in. I was yeah. like, yeah, but it looks like it doesn't look good. Like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's I'm like, so I, I personally have not found a role through an online application in I don't know how long. Um, all the roles I have found in the my, my recent roles have been through networks. Wow. Um, and so it's important, it's really, really important to, especially as like how you wanna get past that screener, that filter, that recruiter is networking and doing so in a, in a super authentic way. So would you say that based off of how niche FinTech is in general, that's the, that's the number one way to land a role in FinTech? Yes. One hundred percent. And when we don't even talk about the the inherent biases present in AI, um, there's been countless papers written on this. That uh, since AI is is trained on things that humans have done in the past, um, those biases creep into a lot of these automated resume reviewing systems as well. Yeah. So the the system is rigged against uh, rigged against you. It is absolutely. So you got you got to go through your personal your your network, and mm-hmm. it takes time to build a network, and it takes time to build what we call our personal board, right? Like mm-hmm. the key folks within your network, um, and you never know, you never know mm-hmm. when someone's going to come out of the woodwork and say, "Hey, yeah. uh, someone had liked your LinkedIn, and I saw on my feed, and I'd love to learn more about you." So what right? advice? Yeah, yeah, what advice would you have for people that, especially that are in the fintech space, that are on the the, the tech side of things that? I guess stereotypically tend to come across as more meek or just more introverted in general. How exactly are, can they build that network? How exactly do they do they get out of their comfort zone and and find individuals of which they can seek mentorship? I think one is for those. Um, it's identifying the groups that you want to be a part of. Number one, right? Like if you're a product or you're an engineering, there's a ton of groups. And I and I tell women um, who are more technical, like who also go through that, right? They're not they're not in sales, they're not in marketing, so they're just not as um, outgoing or they feel less comfortable talking to folks, is join women in product, join women in payments, join any of these groups that give you this inherent commonality Mm -hmm. that then make it easier for you to reach out, right? Or that they'll put in mechanisms in place for you to meet others. So go that, that's kind of the easy route instead. Don't go to this like broad industry thing where you're gonna have to explain yourself a thousand times because you're not gonna wanna do that, but go to the women product. I mean, as a college kid, you don't always know what you want to do, though. So how, how do you build a network when you might not be absolutely hell-bent on one specific industry? That's where that's a headwind that I've run into and probably a lot of other people have run into as well. It, totally. I mean, look, I didn't go out there when I graduated college to say, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to be in financial services and I'm going to build my network through every single group, right? Like, I, I enjoyed myself, you know, right after college. Yeah. Uh, but that's also part of building your network, right? It's just getting out there um, and, and meeting people and understanding what people do. And maybe you don't know, like maybe you're gonna turn around in two years and be like, actually, I wanna be an actor. And, and do it <laughs> like, you don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's, but it's continuing to build and it's just a muscle too that you have yeah. to practice time and people people are just, I hey, look, I go out to a thousand network events and sometimes I just don't wanna do it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm tired or I've told my story already and I just don't want to meet any more people, but it's something you have to practice, especially after COVID people Mm -hmm. weren't used to doing it in person. And it took a while even for me to get back into it. Yeah. I would say it's definitely the social battery phenomenon. I know that when I first started the podcast, I ran it back in high school, I was naturally very introverted. I didn't know how to talk to people when I was a freshman. And I think that that whole muscle metaphor that you're, you're bringing up, I, that's what, helped me because I, I did it around maybe 105 episodes of the podcast I did in high school. So because of that, I had to force myself to be able to connect with guests. I had to force myself to be able to continue a conversation. And I think that without that, I I don't know how to talk to people. And I think that 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 whole experience in general, because I've had to do it so many times and I really wanted to scale that that venture and really make it something successful. It was it was all about learning how I can I can really relate to people, and I think that was the biggest thing. I think the more you do it, you're totally right. The muscle thing is is very real. Yep. Yeah. Communication, building that muscle, and it takes a lot of practice. 
I, I hear that a lot of people who are, are introverts struggle so much with this. And, and if you're an introvert, how can you develop that that skill a little bit when it's when it's scary to be rejected or you come off as socially awkward or, or weird? Yeah, no, it, it's definitely hard. And I, I think it's just, you know, toe dipping yourself into, um, you know, again, you know, trying to identify the groups where you feel less uncomfortable mm-hmm. in and meeting others and and really kind of just slow rolling it versus just jumping straight in. So so within my student organization, do you think it'd be valuable if I if I essentially force people to network with each other? <laughs> I mean, yes, so speed speed networking. Yeah. You should do a speed networking and you set it up and be like, here, seven minutes, elevator pitch, who you are. And then you'll find that they'll be reluctant to move on because they really want to get to know the other person. Okay. Oh, James, you ever hear of that that speed dating thing they do in clubs where yeah. you just have you you have like a musical chair round table, right? And yeah. then you just have people sitting in the same chair, but then you have a bunch of people on the other side that keep swapping after every two minutes. Like that's what they. That's oh, that's what, the Money Twenty Twenty format. Oh, really? Yeah, they do they that. Do. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Money Twenty Twenty yeah. does that. They they have a uh, numbered tables. Yeah. And they they have one person that sits at the table. And yeah. The other. Person oh, they have a swaps. timer and they just keep yep, swapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how that's how that works. And that's why. <laughs> that's why the I wanted to go. From speed dating, like actually, like wanting to date somebody, and now it's like taking the form of speed networking. And there's actually yeah. a, a number of different <laughs> platforms and apps mm-hmm. that help yeah. do that virtually too. If you ever do it virtually. I mean, is it really the same, though, if you're doing it virtually and you're trying to get to know someone? I think it's better if you do it virtually, actually. Why? Because in, in person, it's so loud. and. Well, I mean, if you're if it's one-on-one. Yeah. But it, well, it's one-on-one if it's a private room. But everyone yeah. else around you is so loud. If it's virtual, you can actually take time and write things down while you're talking to this person <laughs> and actually remember who they are. That That's one thing I've struggled with is remembering everyone I've talked to at the end of the night, too, when I'm mm-hmm. at one of those events. Yeah, we do at Vestwell. We do uh, we do speed networking through you know kind of virtual coffees. We're we're a very distributed company, right? We in in twenty twenty we pivoted to remote first, um, and so we have folks everywhere. I'm in California, headquarters in New York, and so we do it virtually um, for folks, and mm-hmm. people love it, right? You get to meet you know your coworker who sits in Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, where I probably wouldn't have an opportunity to speak to them on a regular basis. Um, but I think there's benefits to both. You do mix. I mean, that's actually really interesting because I think that when I've when I've talked to someone online, I think I, I remember them more than, for example, I went to this career fair the other day and I was just telling the same story. Like, I don't think they remembered me. And it was it yeah. was this in-person deal. And, you know, I thought it would it'd be if there's so many people that are doing the exact same thing. I think that the virtual experience is much better. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I think yeah. that. That some of these networking events can be a little bit just over the top. Too. It's mundane. Yeah, mundane. Yeah. I, I'm I'm saying the same thing to a bunch of people over and over again. I wonder how genuine it is. That reminds me of the first two weeks of freshman year. What's your major? What's your name? Where you're from? I know. Like, <laughs> how genuine is that, really? And yeah. it, it gets different when you have a niche interest like financial technology or, yeah. or technology or financial services, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think it'll shake out over time, though. I think, you know, it, it does get mundane. You're like, oh, what do you do? Who are you? Um, but then the other thing we tell people, too, though, is to show up frequently. Yeah. And Vestwell's an entirely hybrid team, right? No, actually. So um, like a lot of other financial fintechs and financial services, we are uh, we have a return to work, uh, return to office policy. Oh. Um, so... We're we're we're, hy- we're hybrid in the sense of like, hey, it applies to those who are mm-hmm. based in New York or based in Austin because yeah. that's where our two main offices are. Mm-hmm. And then for everyone else, we kind of just want to make sure that we get together on a quarterly basis. Mm-hmm. So we're we're flexible in that way. It's not like a full, hey, get to work four or five days a week type yeah. of thing. What's uh, what's RTO been like so far? Has that been challenging post COVID? Um, I don't think so. Look, I sit in, I I sit in California and I work out of my home office. I mm-hmm. wish I had an office to go to. Um. You know, I don't want to be sitting in my office all by myself and just on Zoom all day long. Yeah. So I go to the WeWork so I get like there's actual people around me <laughs> or I'll go sometimes to our VC or and then I make a lot of trips to New York because I do think a lot of that um, there's so much value in being in person and meeting people and just getting to know them. Right. It's all, all that. Hey, let me just turn around and ask a question or that just getting to chit chat and get to know you as a person, mm-hmm. which will make my ask on the business side a lot easier down the road. 
And being in San Francisco makes you pretty valuable to the company too, because that's venture capital heaven, um, and for future rounds potentially. Yeah, venture capital, but also um, when we think about like new markets, right? Like yeah. a lot of the technology out here is really interesting. A lot of innovation um, is out here. I mean, it's it's definitely a hub. Mm-hmm. Have you had success um, getting in with with some new like neo banks and and challenger banks? Yeah, we've been talking to a couple of them. I think what we're very focused on the small and mid-sized business market. Um, and so not every bank is kind of a fit for that. I think the other thing is making sure that there's those banks have traction mm-hmm. and there's a right, there's a, um, and a, you know, the right go to market with each bank too, but banks, it's a huge opportunity with banks. Cause look, banks all have small business clients that yeah. they work with. Um, and how do they create a stickier relationship with their small business client? How do they mm-hmm. create non-interest revenue? How do they create a more holistic relationship? And this is one way to do it. So, you're, you're, have you used banks to form a B two B two C sales um, proposition there? Yeah. So we're talking to a lot of banks right now. Um, you know, we're working really closely with J P Morgan and Chase Bank. Um, there's a lot of interest in the space for banks. Yeah. So how do you how do you get banks to to sell the product for you in a way? Well, so it depends on like where in the bank there's interest, right? So um, sometimes we fall within the wealth org of the banks. So those that are doing um, investment management that work with private clients. And the reason why we fall there is that because their clients all are the small business owners. Mm-hmm. So the, um, an advisor working with a small business owner client, he wants to be an advisor for both, you know, not just the personal wealth, but also, you know, the business wealth. And this is one mm-hmm. way to also retain business and also a way to grow with additional new clients. Now they can go out to other small businesses that they don't work with um, on the owner's side and say, hey, look, now we can offer you kind of more of a holistic offering. Yeah. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, we, we always do this with every guest that we bring on. Um, a lot of our audience uh, is made up of college students between the ages of 18 and 22. And like I kind of hearkened to, um, they're – they may not necessarily know where they want to go in life. Um, and I just ask you, what piece of advice would you give to the average college student who's listening in today that may not know what they want to do? And what would you tell them to put them in a really awesome position in the next five to 10 years? Um, I would say network. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't know what to do, go and explore your interests and network within. You'll be so amazed if you just do a cold outreach to someone on LinkedIn and say, look, I want to learn a little bit more about you. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out my next five years. I'm about to graduate. Most people will say, yeah, I'm happy to have a half an hour chat. Yeah. And then you don't know where that relationship will go. Yeah. Right. So it's continuing to put yourself out there and network. Um, if I had to go back to when I left college and I would have gone back and say, hey, what? you need to go network more. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're the we're the living proof of that because uh, I think we we reached out and we did cold outreach to you. And now we <laughs> we, we have a podcast episode and now Eric's made a new friend, potentially. <laughs> go find my cousin, Andrew Borges. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you to the IU Media School for letting us use their spaces. Thank you to Dr. Monaco, Dr. Dokulich for for everything they've done for us. Um, And and thank you to the IU Kelly School and the Luddy School as well. Have an awesome day. Thank you for coming. Thank you, guys. This has been fun.